The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. The prevalence of type 1 diabetes tends to be higher in white populations, but the age of diagnosis differed, and the age of diagnosis seemed to be later in racial ethnic minority patients relative to white patients. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled Age Diagnosis in U.S. Adults with Type 1 Diabetes. Joining us is the first author, Mike Fang, who's currently an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. His research focuses on the screening, diagnosis, and management of type 1 and 2 diabetes using epidemiologic data. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast I was really intrigued by your uh, observation that you wrote with your colleagues on the age of diagnosis in U.S. adults with type 1 diabetes. Seems to me like this is a uh, major diagnostic error that we are likely to make because we have always thought of type 1 diabetes as juvenile diabetes. Maybe you could talk about what was the rationale for doing this study and uh, what was the background of why you thought this was important to look at? Great question. So I think the background of it was I actually stumbled across this consensus report written by uh, a set of experts in the field in adult onset diabetes. And uh, and this was part of another project. And the sort of opening intro in, in this piece talked about how the majority of cases of type 1 diabetes actually occur in adulthood. And my first reaction to that statistic was, no way, that can't be right. Like I was sort of skeptical because I, like you were saying, I sort of just assumed that it was a childhood disease. And so I started poking around at the data that uh, that was the, base of the uh, basis of that, that statement. And I was like, okay, so there's a bunch of small studies that kind of suggest this, but nothing kind of robust um, and nationally representative. So I was intrigued by the, the observation and the sort of statement by these experts, but I felt like we could do better in terms of the evidence. And that was sort of the impetus. And, and so we, we were working with these national data for another project and I was like, oh, we could easily extend this current, uh, use these data to kind of extend this current current discussion around the age of diagnosis of type 1 diabetes uh, in the U.S. Well, maybe you could describe the data so that uh, our listeners understand how you went about showing this. And uh, if they look at the article, uh, especially uh, the figure on the distribution of age of diagnosis, is just really striking, and we'll go over that in a, in a second. But let's let's talk about how you looked at the data and how you made sure that 
the data were reasonably clean. So the data come from a, a national study called the National Health Interview Survey. And this is one of the big surveys that the CDC has been fielding for, for decades and decades now. And up until 2016, there was no national data source uh, in the U.S. on people with type 1 diabetes. So traditionally, they, they would just ask people, have you ever been diagnosed with diabetes? But they didn't sort of take that second step and say, okay, if you have diabetes, do you have type 1 and type 2? In 2016, they decided to add that question for the first time. And, you know, that for me as a diabetes research uh, epidemiologist um, in diabetes, I was really excited. I was like, oh, this really opens the door to really sort of understand this population at a national level, which we, we couldn't do previously. So in 2016, they started asking, do you have diabetes? Yes, no. If yes, what type? And so you can do type one, you could say type one or type two. And, and they've continuously asked that question now. Um, and the most recent wave was 2022. So we analyzed the, the National Health Interview Survey from 2016 to 2022, and we identified the individuals who said they had type 1 diabetes and currently were using insulin. And this second condition is something the CDC also uses uh, just to improve the accuracy of their definition of type 1 diabetes. Um, and this left us with an analytic sample of about almost 1,000 people. I think it was 950 almost. And so among these individuals, they also reported that and th another question that they were asked for this survey was, if you have diabetes, at what age were you diagnosed, right? So people uh, were asked to recall the age uh, at which they were diagnosed. And then we took that data. And as you said, we sort of mapped that out and, and just sort of graphed that, that distribution. And that was the main figure in, in the analysis. And then we did some subgroup analyses as well, looking at how the age of uh, diagnosis varied across uh, various uh, subpopulations. I've talked to endocrinologists about this before, and this seem, seems to be somewhat common knowledge amongst endocrinologists, but when I mention it to my general internal medicine colleagues, this is not common knowledge. Was there any uh, ethnicity that had more type 1 diabetes than others, or is this spread out uh, pretty much like the population? Well, the prevalence of type 1 diabetes is, it tends to be higher in, in white populations, but the age of diagnosis uh, differed. And the age of diagnosis seemed to be later in racial ethnic minority patients relative to, to white patients. I thought that was a really interesting finding. We're not quite sure what might be driving that later diagnosis in racial ethnic minority patients. Uh, I suspect a lot of that may have to do with access to care. It may be that these individuals are, are not getting screened for diabetes as frequently or going to their doctors and receiving routine care as frequently as their, their uh, non-Hispanic white counterparts. And that may contribute to some of the, those differences in age of diagnosis. So let's let's break this down. We see a lot of type 2 diabetes in internal medicine. And most of those patients, uh, when you look at studies of that involve patients with type 2 diabetes, and I particularly remember the studies of trying to treat chronic kidney disease and, and type 2 diabetes, the average BMI is always around 30. And so in my mind, when I think of type 2 diabetes, and I see a lot of patients with type 2 diabetes, I have a body habitus that is in my mind of, of this is this is a patient that looks like they could have type 2 diabetes. And I've thought of type 1 diabetes as being thin people because they lose weight and, and they're usually kids. Uh, your data don't exactly show that. Maybe you could go over the weight distribution of these patients. 
Sure. So I, I would say one, you're right that the BMI has traditionally been one of these indicators that um, is thought to kind of help with that differential diagnosis between type one and type two. But we can go through specifically the, the BMI analyses. And uh, we see that for people with the BMI less than 25, the median age of onset of these are patients with type 1 diabetes. Um, and so the patients who had a BMI of less than 25, their median age of onset was 18. And then you can see progressively it, go, it increases as they get heavy, as the BMI goes up. I think the one caveat is that the BMI here is BMI at the point which they're, they're answering the survey, not at the point of diagnosis, which um, is an important limitation, right? We, I think, we really do want that BMI at the point of diagnosis. That's really where it's a little bit more uh, informative. But in any event, I, th I think it is the case that you know, the, the, the trend seems to be that the, the higher the BMI, the later the, the age of diagnosis. And it, that is consistent with that, that sort of idea where it's like younger, leaner uh, individuals tend, tend to have that more classic type 1 diabetes, where it is a younger and leaner uh, phenotype. Yep. And they're less likely to have type two diabetes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So when you you have a very nice table of sociodemographic and clinical characteristics, when a patient comes into my office, uh, if I have an office, I'm I'm actually hospitalist now, but when I had an office and they have some symptoms of diabetes, I do a finger stick and their blood sugars four hundred. What makes me think? that I should worry about type 1 diabetes? When should I worry about type 1 diabetes? And how my, might I address that? Should I send off tests to try to figure out that they have type 1 diabetes? Or should I assume that everybody who's 50 years old has type 2 diabetes? No, no, don't, don't assume. <laughs> I think that if anything, if one of the lessons in this paper is don't assume uh, just because they're they're of a certain age that they, they have uh, type 2 diabetes. I guess the first thing to say is this is an active area of research. Uh, we as a research community have not kind of identified a core set of markers that really distinguishes people with type 1, adult onset type 1 and type 2 that well, right? Uh, we have a standard set of clinical characteristics, but people in fields like precision medicine are really interested in developing, you know, genetic risk scores and looking for, you know, biomarkers that really help uh, with that differential diagnosis and, and help make that a little bit more precise. Uh, with that being said, some of the traditional characteristics that people are recommended to look for, the, the key one that the guidelines talk about all the time is age of diagnosis, right? If it's a younger, the younger the patient is, the more likely it is to be type 1. And this is a fair comment, right? If it's younger, it tends to be type one. But if we just operate on that assumption, then we're going to end up missing a lot of cases as our, our paper um, suggests, right? So useful, but in and of itself, it's not sort of diagnostic, right? So the other factor people often talk about, as you were talking about, BMI, right? Um, at people who are leaner tend to be type one. If it's a heavier person with a higher BMI, it, it it's a likelier type two case. The caveat with that is we've done some analyses, including in this paper, showing that overweight and obese is actually quite common in patients with type 1 diabetes, right? We live in a country where on average 40% of adults are obese or have obesity. 
it, it's not that it hasn't affected type the type one population at all. It, it has. And in fact, their weight profile in, in another paper we wrote, we looked at the weight profile of people with type one diabetes and no diabetes and their weight profile looked very, very similar, right? So there are increasing levels of overweight and obesity um, in type one diabetes, which may make this kind of BMI uh, factor it's still relevant, but it's still it, it, it may be a little bit more uh, problematic just to rely on BMI as well. Uh, some of the other factors they say is a family history of autoimmune diseases. So you look at family history um, and you look for the presence of other other autoimmune conditions like thyroid disease. And if those are present, maybe that'll sort of that should alert you. And then they, you look at response to treatment. Um, and th- this is actually post diagnosis, right? You may have an initial diagnosis where you're giving them orals. And you're noticing the, their, their glucose is still sky high and they're not responding to orals very well. You might, um, that may be an indication that uh, this, this patient may be type one and they're not producing their own insulin anymore and that you may want to run uh, additional tests uh, to check for that. Back when I was young, uh, everybody with diabetes had a urinalysis and uh, they actually sort of followed the urine glucose as one of the ways they took care of diabetes because before we had finger sticks. But if someone presents, uh, I'm wondering whether or not a urinalysis, and if they had ketones in the urinalysis, that might be a clue that uh, we should at least screen for type 1 diabetes because people with type 2 diabetes are much less likely to get ketosis. Yeah, you, I think that's another uh, factor that some of the guidelines talk about looking at if they're also sort of experiencing excessive weight loss, if they're experiencing kind of complaining about excessive urinating and always being thirsty, some of those classic signs of type 1 diabetes, if they sort of report that as well, definitely uh, worth running uh, additional tests, uh, testing the antibodies, for example, um, to test for type 1. Well, let me see if I can if I can reframe this patient comes in, we make the diagnosis of diabetes, we should take a history. Most people with type 2 diabetes have a very strong family history. Mm-hmm. We It's hard to tell from, from your table on family history of diabetes in this group because over half of them did, didn't have any data. And so it's sort of hard to extrapolate what the family history is. And we know there is some genetic risk for uh, type 1 diabetes. We should all ask ourselves, does this patient fit what we call uh, the illness script of type 2 diabetes? Type 2 diabetes tends to be uh, overweight to obese, tends to have parents who who had or, or close siblings who had type 2 diabetes, tend to have a more modest uh, increase in glucose, and like you said, you put them on metformin uh, and usually get a good response uh, early with the diagnosis. If you don't fit that, then maybe it's worthwhile. And I guess the question is, we could check for anti-GAD, but not everybody with type 1 diabetes is anti-GAD. There are a couple of other antibodies we could test for, but we could also get a C-peptide and see whether or not they're making insulin. And uh, I don't know in your reading whether or not the uh, guidelines are addressing that. I know you and I talked uh, earlier and there are some diabetologists who feel like we should check everybody for the possibility of type 1 diabetes. Yeah. So there's a lot to respond to the comments. Yeah. So I think the first is, yes, if, if there is suspicion, if there is doubt, 
then the first test that the ADA recommends is the antibody panel, right? And like you were saying, the GAD is, if, if there's, if cost is a concern, they say, okay, just run the GAD, right? GAD is the most sensitive test, but if you want to just be sort of more comprehensive, just run the whole, the full antibody panel and just, you know, it sort of just roll it out, right? If there's any sort of concern where the patient doesn't quite fit that type two, like you're saying, that sort of classic type two presentation for any reason, just, just rule it out. I will say that there has been there there are discussions that some in the field suggest just every new onset type two diabetes case should just you should just run an antibody test regardless. I think that's a little <laughs> I think that's a little too much, right? Because when you run these tests, you also have the risk of false positives, right? So someone may actually have type two, you find antibodies. You're like, oh, you actually have type one. I'm going to put you on insulin. Well, this is actually this may actually be a case uh, of type two that you're going to start initiating insulin when you don't really need to. The guidelines are clear here, where they say you need clinical suspicion, right? It, you don't want to just sort of do it wholesale. Don't want to sort of just use it as a, a universal tool. But when it's sort of targeted, that's when it's most effective, right? So the antibody testing. Now the C peptide thing is interesting. I I've, <laughs> I had a conversation with uh, one of my colleagues in endocrinology. They're like, yeah, the C peptide is sort of useful. It, it you know it's useful to know if they're kind of and producing their, their level of insulin production. But he's like, I, you know, you can have people that are producing low, the low amounts of insulin, but are still well controlled, right? For them, it's just like, I'm, I'm going to monitor their glucose. That to me is a more sort of better indication of, of their response to treatment and, and whether or not I should be suspicious of type one. So that was just one colleague's perspective. I don't know how, how well he sort of um, <laughs> represents the entire entire field. Well, I hope everybody will read your article, but let's just finish by having you describe figure one, which which is the only figure in the, in the in the article. But I think that the the graph is worth looking at and keeping in mind about the distribution of age at diagnosis of U.S. adults with type one diabetes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is so the figure that Bob is talking about is the figure that we show where we look at the age, the spread in the data in the age of diagnosis for people with type one diabetes, and you can see it it is it's shifted to the left, right? So there is a bump at around age fourteen to fifteen, and this is consistent with some of the prior research where that suggests that you know the incidence of type one diabetes peaks at around kind of the teenage years. So we're seeing that, right? So it is a younger disease for sure, but the median age of onset was age 24, meaning half of the people in our study were were diagnosed before the age of 24, and then half of the individuals were diagnosed after the age of 24, right? So not nearly as young as we would assume, right? If we assume 24 is fairly, you know, it's still, a, it's a young adult, but it's still fairly old. It's not that sort of childhood onset that we typically associate with type 1 diabetes. The other thing is you can see there's a there's people all across the age spectrum that are, are sort of reporting that they're diagnosed, getting diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Uh, people in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, right? So it does really emphasize that it can happen at all uh, across the whole sort of uh, lifespan uh, as well. Well, I can't thank you enough, Mike, for uh, joining us on the podcast. I think that this conversation is really useful for all of us who see patients with new diabetes, whether we're in the hospital or as an outpatient. And just to keep our minds clear, does this fit type two diabetes? 
or is there any reason why we probably ought to test further? And I'm going to make this final statement, which you can respond to. Uh, yeah. One of the tricks here is we're, we're calling two diseases that have that really have totally different mechanisms by the same name, and they're really different diseases. And sometimes we just say they have diabetes and we assume it's type 2 diabetes, but trying to separate them out as different uh, from a pathophysiologic standpoint, I think is very important in terms of managing the patients. I 100% agree. And within sort of type 1 and type 2, the field is increasingly interested in some of the heterogeneity within that, right? So it's like type 1, but there's adult onset type 1 versus childhood onset type 1, where the childhood onset tends to be very acute. It's a very aggressive disease, and and you need to start insulin early, uh, often right at the point of diagnosis, if not you know shortly after, versus the adult onset sort of phenotype, which is tends to be a little bit slower moving. You can go months, year. There's patients, um, you know, I've talked to some of the co- my colleagues. They're like, I have adult onset type 1 diabetes cases where we haven't started them on insulin for like four to five years after diagnosis. It, it is remarkable that the sort of uh, variability in how quickly their beta cells will eventually sort of fail. Like some people fail instantly when, with adult onset type 1 diabetes, but others, they've maintained insulin production for a long time. So like you were saying, there's a lot of different heterogeneity, um, and the field is really interested in sort of um, pulling that apart now and kind of tailoring therapies and management based on your specific phenotype. Well, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. All right. Thank you, Bob. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The age of onset of type 1 diabetes is much broader than most of us have thought over the years. We need to consider it in adults, especially when adults present in certain ways. First is weight. When patients are on the thin side, uh, that's unlikely to be type 2 diabetes, and we should say, could this be type 1 diabetes? Uh, Lack of family history uh, also points us towards uh, type 1 diabetes. If they happen to have ketosis, that's a very strong indication. And patients who you start treating because you think they have type 2 diabetes but don't respond well to oral agents at all, you need to consider could it be type 1 diabetes. If you do consider that, you can either test with antibodies, usually anti-GAD, which is not 100%, or with a C-peptide, that could demonstrate whether or not the patient's making insulin. We hope uh, that this podcast will help you better consider the possibility of type 1 diabetes in adults who present in unusual ways. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.